You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of the Uncorking Historia podcast is brought to you by the novel Return to Casa Grande. Return to Casa Grande is a story of Blaze Hazelwood, a former household name actor who's searching for relevance in an entertainment environment that's remarkably different from what it was in his heyday. It's also the story of Allison Hart, a smart, driven and stunning entertainment executive looking for lightning to strike twice. Blaze was the breakout star of Casa Grande, a 1980s primetime soap opera loved by millions. 25 years after the show went off the air, the rest of the cast is struggling to get by, but Blaze manages to stay busy, doing voiceover work and participating in focus groups to continually build his acting chops. If there's one thing Blaze hates, it's reality TV, for he truly believes that it represents everything wrong with the entertainment industry and quite possibly the world, today. Harvard-educated Allison Hart, meanwhile, has a hit in her hands with Bling It On featuring T-Bang, a celebrity show she crafts around a Hollywood bad boy. The show's popularity doubled the sales of a sponsor's product, and she's been approached to repeat the success for a brand targeted towards women in an age group who still romance over Blaze Hazelwood and Casa Grande. When Blaze unknowingly appears on an episode of Bling It On, the internet goes crazy, and this puts Blaze... Allison and the former cast of Casa Grande on a collision course filled with hilarity and twists and turns that can only be true in a story featuring aging soap opera stars. You can buy the book at www.returntocasagrande.com. Okay, let's start the show. Welcome to the Uncorking a Story podcast. I'm your host, Michael Carlin. My guest on the show today is a woman by the name of Gerald Abramson. Now, you may be saying to yourself, self, who is Gerald Abramson and why should I listen to an interview with her? Well, my friends, let me tell you something. Gerald is the current owner of Max Yasger's homestead. Now, for those of you who don't know who Max Yasger is, I'll give you a little bit of education around the 1960s. So in the late 1960s, in August of 1969, uh, you may have heard of a festival called Woodstock. Woodstock was actually supposed to be held in the town of Woodstock, New York, but festival organizers had a hard time obtaining a permit. And uh, after searching and searching, uh, a dairy farmer by the name of Max Yasger offered his property to uh, host the event. And some at some point in time, and I think the early part of the 1980s, um, Max Yasker's uh, widow uh, put the property up for sale, and uh, it was purchased by Roy Howard and his wife, Gerald Abramson. So uh, before we get into the meat of the interview, I just wanted to share with you how I came to interview Gerald, uh, because it's kind of a roundabout story. About seven years ago, I was hired by a company out of Columbus, Ohio, who makes protein powders. And they wanted me to interview uh, professional athletes, and we found ourselves in Phoenix, Arizona, interviewing um, some professional athletes at a very elite training facility. Actually, it was in Tempe, and um, it was it was an awesome project. 
I got to uh, interview a guy by the name of Brian Roberts, who at the time was playing baseball for the Baltimore Orioles, as well as a linebacker for the Cincinnati Bengals, whose name was Dahani Jones. Uh, But in addition to interviewing professional athletes, my clients decided that it might not be a terrible idea to interview some high school athletes as well. So in Phoenix, Arizona, I met a uh, a high school kid by the name of um, Zach Howard. And, you know, as it is in in these situations, a lot of times the parents stick around for the interview because, you know, they want to make sure that, you know, they haven't, uh, you know, uh, invited some weirdos into their homes. Um, So they wanted to make sure that we were okay. So and and I'm pretty familiar with this whenever I I do work with with uh, kids. Uh, Parents typically stick around and make sure that I'm not some kind of a serial killer, which, of course, I'm not. At least I don't think I am anyway. No, I'm pretty sure I'm not. Um, anyway, so I get to talking to, uh, his mother, his mother, uh, is Gerald and just to build some small talk, um, you know, uh, I'm telling her where I'm from and she told me where, where she and the family just moved out from, which was the town of Bethel, New York. And I thought to myself, Hmm, that town sounds familiar. And of course I, I realized, um, you know, after a few minutes that Bethel was actually where, the Woodstock Festival was held in uh, 1969, in August of 1969. And, you know, Gerald appeared to be the age of somebody who may have uh, wound up at that festival. So I said, um, you know, how far away are you from Yasker's farm? And she says, well, funny you ask, because my husband and I, and she pointed to uh, Roy, her husband, um, are the owners of Max Yasker's homestead. And then all of a sudden the wheels of my interview, you know, kind of came off the bus. I started asking her questions about that period of time. And, um, you know, uh, my clients kind of gave me a bit of a nudge because we were there after all to interview Zach about his use of protein powders. So I filed, um, this, uh, this kind of interaction away in my head and cut to seven years later this past week, I was in Phoenix, Arizona, interviewing people about banking, and I said, you know, I wonder if this woman, Gerald, still lives in Phoenix. So I did what any normal person would do. I stalked her on Facebook, and I looked to see if if she was on social media. Sure enough, I find her, uh, send her a friend request. Surprisingly, she accepts it, and I sent her a note. saying, hey, uh, my name is Mike. I run this podcast called Uncorking a Story. I'd love to hear more about uh, your ownership of uh, the Yasger property. And, and uh, you know, I'd love to talk to you about that period of time in, in U.S. history. And she uh, surprisingly also <laughs> said she'd be happy to be interviewed. So what follows here is my interview with Gerald Abramson. Um, we spoke for a, a, about a half hour. And uh, if you listen in, if you stick through it, you're going to hear some some great stories about what it was like to be a teenager in that that period of time in the late 1960s and how she would uh, leave her home in in Brooklyn and and go over to uh, the Fillmore East in Manhattan, see the dead play, see all these great bands play. And you'll hear about um, her experiences, um, you know, for those three days in August of 1969, when when she and her mother would would uh, make some peanut butter sandwiches and pass them out to the the hungry people who were kind of stranded because of all the traffic that was going on on the on the highways, the throughways, the back roads at the time. You'll also hear um, a, uh, a a wonderful story. I mean, it wasn't wonderful for her at the time, but it has a nice ending about how the current town 
um, of Bethel um, was trying to block her and her late husband from having uh, hosting Woodstock reunions on her own property. And um, you'll hear about the kind of the 17-year battle that she and her husband uh, waged on the, the town of Bethel, which eventually resolved itself um, in a bittersweet manner. They were able to obtain the permit required to host um, kind of Woodstock homecoming and, and Woodstock reunions. But unfortunately, it happened um, just a few weeks um, after uh, Gerald's beloved husband, Roy, passed away from cancer. So uh, happy ending, but bittersweet. You'll also hear her take on uh, the music industry today um, and some other great stories of the 60s. So without further ado, I'm going to share with you my interview with Gerald Abramson, and I really hope you enjoy it. If you have any comments or questions for me, please feel free to send me an email. My email address is mike at uncorkingastory.com. I know that you own the property, um, Yasker's, Yasker's property, yeah. right? And I'm just curious to know, like, how, how you came into that and how you, you, what were you doing before that? So a little bit, maybe just a little bit of biographical stuff on you, and then I just want to pick your brain about that period of time, you know, that period of time in, in the late 60s and kind of what was going on, what it was like. You know, I'm just fascinated by it. So Okay. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about what uh, the aftermath Absolutely. of the Woodstock thing and also what I'm doing now, which is I'm in the process of opening up a campground. Oh, great. To welcome hippies home for the season. Yeah. And after, this has been a really long battle with the town. I remember because I met you yeah. six, I don't know when it was, I like five or six years 06. ago. Yeah. It was. A, oh, really? It was a while. You oh. had just moved to Phoenix. You had just moved here. That was here. in 06. Okay. So, so maybe it was. 10 years oh, my ago. God. Wow. And um, you were telling me, so I had two clients with me in your home because we were talking right. to your son yeah. about protein powders. We were supposed to be, and then I got sidetracked. And we started talking about um, the property and then the, the, the battles you were facing with the town. Right. So I definitely wanted to circle back on that and get the kind of the full story arc. But why don't, okay. we, why don't we start at the beginning? So which 19, is which is, well, let's start in 1969 or thereabouts. Okay. Well, I started, we're on now. Right? Yeah, we're, we're good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I started before 69. In 69, I had just turned 15. And, um, what was it like to be 15 years old in 1969? It was a lot of fun. It, it really was. There, there was a lot of activity going on, a lot of um, protesting, a lot of, you know, coming into an age of awareness. So it was, it was really a lot of fun. Um, it, it, it was an intellectual experience to grow up during that, that era. We had a lot of renaissance going on. Uh, so that that was great, but I had been seeing all of these bands that played at Woodstock. I had seen them at the Fillmore East, yeah, because you know we used to go out at night, and uh, I lived in Brooklyn, and we would uh, get into my boyfriend's car, yeah, at the time, and uh, drive down to Greenwich Village and go to the Fillmore, and then get home in time to go to school. <laughs> and they had split sessions then, so I would only. Um, I, I got out at like eleven o'clock and then I'd go home and crash. Yeah. So it, it was a fun who, night. Who do you remember seeing at, at the film Maurice in those days? Uh, the Jefferson Airplane, the Grateful Dead constantly, uh um BB King, 
Um, Mountain. Um, oh, Leslie West? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Great guitar player. Yes, yes, many times. Well, they used to have, like, the new riders of the Purple Sage would always open for the dead. Yeah. And then there would always be, like, a third band, whether it was, um, you know, uh, the Jefferson Airplane or Joe Cocker or whoever happened to be there. There were East Coast, West Coast bands, and then there were the British bands. And that's how Woodstock uh, was organized in terms of, um, you know, the concert venue, you know, the the um, the, the order of of uh, the bands. They yeah. were from those three different uh, genre, you know, yeah. styles. Or but since so you're 15 and and you're seeing these bands that are, I mean, their history is unfolding before your your eyes. Right. Well, here's and your the, ears. Well. So that was the era that I grew up in. Yeah. But in 1969, in the summer, I was with my family at the Jewish bungalow colony that we all went to and uh, in Monticello, which was about nine miles from, you know, ground zero of Woodstock. And I had no idea. We, You know, we were cloistered away. There was no phone. There was party lines. That was about it. Yeah. Um, no TV, no radio. We, you know, nobody knew what was going on in the outside world. So all of a sudden, all this traffic came in. And, and that was what I remember most, is cars with foreign license plates from, yeah. like, Michigan and Alaska and California and, and you know, wild places. And bumper to bumper and nobody moving. And um, the median in the highway, which was a grass median, uh, people were camped out there. And cars were just stopped everywhere. And you could not move. Like, what were your, what were you thinking at this time? What were, like, your parents thinking at this time? My father couldn't get upstate. He was stuck in Brooklyn because they closed all the roads. They closed the throughway and everything. Um, my mother said, you can go, but you better be home by, and I had a curfew, and there was no way she was letting me stay there all night. Yeah. So... Did you make it home? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) You didn't know my mother. (laughs) I had just turned 15 the week before. Yeah. So, you know, there was no way she was letting me... She didn't know what was going on there. Right. It was kind of chaos. Did you know what was going on there? Um, no, not until it was already happening. Yeah. But people were stranded all over the place. So my mother and I were making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. We were using whatever food we had in the house, making sandwiches, whatever we could. And just I was bringing it down to the road to, um, you know, hand out to people. Yeah. And water, you know, pitchers of and water. And that was a common thing, wasn't it? I mean, people just kind of helping people, you know, who were stranded and who were kind of stuck everybody was just stuck yeah. it's true i mean everybody was standing still stuck and what were you going to do i mean they needed water and they needed something to eat and they needed a place to go you know right. <laughs> so you know that was the biggest problem was sanitation uh medical issues uh and the water supply yeah and then, so you went, did you go multiple days to the, the actual event? I mean, did you see I never acts, got or to the you never stage. got there? No, you couldn't get anywhere, you know, you couldn't get within five miles of that. Yeah. And that was even walking. I mean, it, it was packed. Plus, there was a summer, you know, it, it was a summer resort area, 
So it was crowded anyway, and then a half a million people came in, and there was just no room to turn around. Yeah. Yeah, so you didn't see any of the you didn't see any of the show. You didn't see any of the not at Woodstock, yeah. no. But I had seen them all at the film. At, at, right, right, right. So, so Woodstock happens in in August of of '69. Um, what happens after that? So you, what do you wind up going back to Brooklyn, or what's the? Yeah, I went back to Brooklyn, uh, finished growing up, and then uh, I got married. That didn't work out. Then you know, in between, I wound up meeting. One of the most interesting characters I have ever met in my life, and that was Roy Howard. Yeah. And that started a 20-year romance. How did you meet Roy? What was, what was that love story? It just kind of, it was weird because we both lived in the same small town. We knew all the same people, and we never met each other. And then one day we just bumped into each other, and it was just that was it. What town was that? Was that Brooklyn or was that? Monticello. It was Monticello. Upstate New okay. York. Yeah, he had a beer store. He had a, um, a wholesale beer distribution. Yeah. So he, he uh, that was his kind of, you know, where he came from. Yeah. So, and then he bought the Asger farm a few years before he met me. He was just buying real estate. Things were good and uh, his business was doing well. And he was investing in real estate in in the community, in the area. So how did he, did he know Max Yasker or? I don't believe so, no. Yeah. I don't think uh, that they knew each other. I think his grandfather knew Max Yasker. Um, okay. But I don't believe that, that Roy knew him. Right. And um, for people who might be listening to this who have no idea who Max Yasker is, who was, who was Max Yasker? Oh, he, he was one of uh, the heroes of... of of that era. Max Jasker was the dairy farmer who opened his home and his field to everyone so that they could gather for the 1969 uh, Woodstock Festival. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, it's called Woodstock, but it didn't actually happen in well, Woodstock, Well, that's right, yeah. because um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the brain child of this was um, uh, Michael Lang, and uh, he... He was from, uh, or he had been, he was living, I believe, in uh, the Woodstock, Ulster County area. And uh, that, Woodstock had a lot of bands at that time. They, you know, a lot of famous people living there, and some that still live there. Lee Von Helm lived there for years, and he just passed away. Um, he was a uh, drummer for the band? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, and their songwriter, um, uh, um, John Sebastian, Bob Dylan was living there. The band was living there. Um, Joan Baez, I think, was there. Um, Dylan, I don't know if I mentioned him. But there were, there were a lot. I think Jimi Hendrix was hanging out there, yeah. Janis Joplin. It's like, it's like the Laurel Canyon of, uh, of yeah. New York. Yeah, it, it really, it, for some reason, there was a lot going on there musically at that time in the town of Woodstock. So Michael Lang had been in... in um, Florida, I believe, and he produced the show the year before, and it was successful, and he came back to New York, and he settled up in Saugerties, the next town over from Woodstock, and he decided to, you know, cull a little of the local talent, <clears throat> and, uh, excuse me, and he got some property, and he was going to do this festival. There's, there's a backstory to that, but that's the bottom line, and he had some he had three partners with him, um, Artie Kornfeld and um, John Roberts and Joel Rosenberg. 
And um, the four of them got together and they formed Woodstock Ventures and they were going to uh, do a recording studio, but they decided to finance it through this festival. It's sort of... Oh, interesting. I never knew that. And so, yeah, so that's, that's more or less what happened. And... Um, Wow. <laughs> so, so anyway, the uh, the farmer Fred, I think his name was Fred Schiller. He uh, he found that hippies were coming in, and then the town got on his case, and he was like, "Okay, over and done with. You got to go." So then they went down to um, Middletown, New York, next county over, and they went into a deal there. And the town found out about it, and they started passing all kinds of laws that this could never happen. So rather than argue with it, it was already July. They had, like, you know, they were, the clock was ticking. And they had all of these acts booked. The Who, all of them were, were booked already. And money was out, and they needed real estate. Well, a very good friend of my late husband's and mine, uh, Elliot Tiber, he had a hotel or a little motel on the corner. And you might have known him from the movie Taking Woodstock. Mm-hmm. And he offered the land. Michael Lang, um, he came up and he said, no, this is underwater. There's, you know, it's too small. And Elliot said, wait, my milkman is down the road. And he brought them to Max Jasker. Max said yes. And the rest became Woodstock. And that's history. And that's the property you... And that's... See, now they were in Bethel. So to answer your question, they went through the third county. And the reason why it was still called Woodstock, even though it was in Bethel, was because it was too late to change the advertising. Yeah. Yeah. Everything had had been printed. (laughs) They had everything everything been printed. printed. Wow. And uh, and that's the property you own now, Yasger's... uh, I I own his homestead. Yeah. My husband bought it in '85. Uh, we moved there in '93, and he passed away three years ago in January. And then I became sole owner. Yeah, and then and the property where the actual festival was held is was that developed into a? It's an amphitheater. Uh, it's called Bethel Woods. Yeah, and um, you know they do shows and and um, a lot of community outreach, and they have a museum. Um, you know, but yeah. but that's a concert spot. Right. What right. I do is more of yeah. a gathering. But yours, I mean, your your property, it's it's almost like sacred ground, right? And especially for the people who it depends on who you ask. Well, Most people would say it is sacred yeah. ground. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, so I, where I was going to was you have you have this like place where I'm sure like people, you know, akin to like religious sites where people want to make pilgrimages to. Yes. And what. It seems like, if I remember the story correctly, you faced some barriers in, um, like, keeping pilgrimages going there, or, or what, what, what struggles did you face? I mean, because I know there were a couple. Oh, my God. They tried everything. They, um, they had roadblocks. They had helicopters flying over. They did everything to stop us. All we wanted was the permits. This all started with... A request 20 years ago for what was then a free permit with virtually no regulations. And we kept getting delayed and pushed back and stories back and forth. And we couldn't get this permit. Well, then they put an injunction on us to prevent us from seeking the permit. 
or actually it was to prevent us from doing anything without the permit that they wouldn't give us. And so there was a series of, you know, cat and mouse kind of things going on, people sneaking in, people, you know, calling it a yard sale, you know, everybody getting together and saying, we're not here really, you know, right. you don't really see us, and, and still coming anyway, and then the town would get crazy. But it got to the point people got tired of the game and they stopped coming, and it really hurt the town, you know. And, and I don't, I think it just, I, I don't even know what it is about. You know, the town needs commerce, you know, there, I was at a town board meeting uh, uh, about a year ago applying for my permit, and they're talking about raising taxes. And there are five people sitting on a board scratching their heads saying, we can't think of a way to raise money in this town. And they're saying, you know, we're trying to think outside the box. What can we do? And I just stood there. I'm like... Excuse me, I have an idea. This is the home of the Woodstock Festival. Maybe if we stopped arresting people for coming here and welcomed them in, they might start coming back and we might be able to produce something. And even though Bethel Woods is doing what they're doing, it's not doing anything for the town if we don't do something to keep the people who are coming to visit there longer and give them something to come there for. Right. Because people are trying to come and, and camp and spend some time, right? right? but they outlawed, they outlawed sleeping outdoors. Yeah. And how do you outlaw sleeping outdoors? I don't know. Yeah. But they did. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's like, that's part of the culture, right? I mean, that's part it's of that. It's like outlawing sneezing. <laughs> you know, I mean, Roy once said to him, what if a baby falls asleep in a stroller? That's a misdemeanor in the town of Bethel. I mean, they just went nuts. Yeah. So that went on for 20 years. I mean, it's almost, it's almost, uh, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I mean, the, fest, the original festival organizers had to go to three stops before they found a place to, 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 to set it up. It's almost like it's tapping into that a little bit, you know? We're, we're, is it a fear of the gathering, the fear of who's coming? Is it. People hating hippies? You know, all of the above. And the, the, you know, government controls everything that we do. Government controls every, you, you have to get a permit for everything. You have to get a permit to own a dog. You have to get a permit to fish. You have to get a permit to get married. You have to have a permit to, you are documented and permitted for everything that you do. And if you don't have your proper permit, you're in violation. You need a permit to drive a car. If you think about it, you have to go to them for a license or a permit to do anything that you do to make a living on top of the taxes that you pay. So they decide a lot, and they decide with your money what you're going to do with your property. And if they decide that you're doing nothing with your property, you will do nothing with your property. And sooner or later, they feel like, well, you know, maybe we could do something better than you can. And the Supreme Court upheld this logic. 
a few years ago, they actually passed a law upholding this logic. Yeah. That, you know, if if government, if, if, a, if a developer comes into an area and sees a better reason to use your property, he can convince the town that the town would do better with him owning your property than with you owning your property, and therefore eminent domain would apply. Yeah. Yeah. Did you face that at all? I mean, did you, were you in threat of eminent domain? No. No. But in my case, I was denied a permit. And I was denied the right to use my property for any gain. And to make a long story short, (laughs) 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 you know, I think what happened to me is important. You know, I'm not going to go through the whole 20 years of torture. Um, But it got to the point where it was so vengeful that they they were spiting themselves to spite me. And the town was losing out a lot, and they finally woke up to that. You can't raise taxes in the town that hosted Beth Woodstock and say that you can't think of a way to to attract tourism. Right. This is right. bizarre. So how did it, did it eventually resolve itself? Uh, yeah. Uh, two months after my husband passed away, oh. they gave me a permit. So he couldn't, he, he didn't live to see the, uh, no. the <laughs> outcome. So since you have the permit, what's, what's changed? I mean, what, what goes well, on? And- well, now we can advertise. We can tell people that we're, we're gathering. Like this year, it's going to be August 12th through 14th. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we can also now move forward, and uh, uh, we're going ahead with planning right now to open up a seasonal campground. I hope to be open at least partially this summer and extend the season and give hippies a home. Yeah. Um, so it, it has a happy ending. Yeah. Or at least a... a a lot better than, than where it was. Well, you know, it's bittersweet. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm angry about a lot of things, I'll be honest. Yeah. You know, but at the end of the day, yeah, it, it's going to work out. It's going to be good. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a lot of music in the woods. That's great. Now, I have to ask, what was it like seeing the dead in the Fillmore East back, you know, when you're 15 years old? Is that life-changing? Um... I, you know what? It was, and but so was everything else that was going on. Yeah. It, it was. The well, paint a picture of that for me. The civil rights movement was was happening. The music reflected that. I mean, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Yeah. Um, you know the song Ohio and and all. There was the war going on. That was Ohio was more about that. Um, there was a lot of unrest on the campuses. There, there was a lot of protesting going on, and I was living in a major city uh, growing up there. So, you know, we had a good sense of humor about everything. We had, we had a good perspective about everything. I, I think we were involved uh, politically. We were interested in in what was happening around us, not just, you know, the universe revolving around us. We were part of the world. Yeah. Um, we were making a good statement. In some way, we dropped the ball. What, what, what is it about 
kind of civil unrest and war that leads to some of the greatest music ever being created? Passion? I mean, you know, yeah, people, you know, it's, it's a form of expression. People have something to say. And they have a, a you know, I think that's one of the, pre- the problems that we have right now is where is the unity in, you know, we're all struggling to get through a day. And we're so concerned with our own individual getting through the day that we don't have the camaraderie that we had back in the day when I was growing up. We don't have that luxury. Yeah. I came from a prosperous era. You know, whether my family was prosperous or not, the, the, the economics of the United States was solid then. There was a, a large population coming out. We were coming out of the war you know, out of World War II yeah. and, and before Vietnam started. Um, I, don't, I don't know why, that, you know, I think you had a large generation of people that were very vocally against going to a foreign country, uninvited, and putting ourselves in harm's way. For what? Right. I mean, it's, 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 you know, you you, you think about, and and I never do politics. Like, I don't talk about it. But it's not, that that similar sentiment has been expressed about, you know, the the wars in Iraq, wars in Afghanistan. Um, Yet, I don't think the music is as good these days as it was back then. Not as familiar with it. It's not my generation. It's not mine either. Um, I'm scared to death about music, though, because I hear what my kids listen to, and it scares me. I think there's a lot of control of the music industry right now, and unfortunately, we're getting away from any independent artist, and we're taking away the possibility of the independent artist breaking through. Everything is so commercialized. Everything is so... You know, ASCAP owns all the rights to not just the music, every note. They own radar. They own every sound that goes through. I mean, they own vibrations in the air. (laughs) And everybody has to pay them for the privilege of music. You know, I also think that there's, the kids are in a different place. Um, and what I mean by that is, I, I mean, I remember it, I'm, I'm uh, more of the cassette generation than, mm-hmm. than the record generation. But, you know, we used, to, we used to share tapes and listen to tapes, and it was like a group activity. And now things are so – and we used to listen to albums, you know, front to back. And the order of songs was important. And now it's downloads. And, not, I mean, look, I download – pay for it, but download lots of music. But – We've almost got a way of, from from the artist's perspective, they spend a lot of time putting together an album, making sure it sounds great, arguing about the order of the songs, to now people just downloading singles. Here's a big problem. We're all isolated. We shop online. We watch. We, we all have individual screens that we watch everything. We're, we're all texting to each other. We don't talk. You know... 
we're isolated. We, we are being divided to be conquered. We're being broken economically. We're being broken socially. We're isolated socially. I, I think, we're, you know, there's going to be a lot of problems coming yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's like one of those things you where... You push people a little too far, and, you know, eventually they're going to snap. Yeah. It's just a matter of getting everyone together. Right. You know, the 99% is strong. Yeah, well, sure. You know, the 1% may have all the money, and they may have control of a lot, but 99% is strong. But you have to keep it up. You, you know, you have to keep it going. And there isn't enough interaction, personal interaction going on to, to really make that change. And that's one of the things that I strive for at Yasgros is that we're coming together as a community. And right. I want to stretch that out for a full season so that people know that any time they come to Yasgros, it's going to be an enlightening experience. It's going to be something that you don't get anywhere else. You're going to interact with people. Yeah. You're going to see, you're going to be entertained, and you're going to be entertained by each other. Are you going to have a no cell phone policy there? No, you can't do that. <laughs> That's just crazy talk. No, you know what? There are, there are actually festivals that block um, the, the, um, the cell towers so that if you want to get on Wi-Fi, you have to pay them for right. that. But now, Yasgos isn't going to do that. <laughs> now, for August 12th through 14th, can anyone show up to that? Do you have to make a reservation, or what's the, what's the well, protocol? Well, the best policy is to make a reservation. You can do that online, yasgorobreunion.com. Okay. Um, you know, we have a limited amount of space, and uh, people come from all over. Right. So Family-friendly? Oh, yeah. No dogs, but, yeah, family, we, you know, we love having kids there. It's a lot of fun. We have a circus, um, so they, they, they're in costume, they're in character all weekend long. There's about 15 people on stilts and juggling, oh, wow. and, and we have three fairies, and we have um, a, a guy who does life-size bubbles and puppet shows, and, and you know, there's a lot of uh, performance artists besides... Uh, you know, the stage. Yeah. And we even have a dancing duck. A dancing duck? Dobie, yes. <laughs> uh, musicians? And the drum circle. I imagine musicians. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we haven't announced yet, but, you know, we've got a lot of our old favorites coming back. Um, they've been with us for years, and uh, including the band Slug that uh, has the duck. And <laughs> I'll, I'll give a plug for Slug. And uh, there's a whole bunch of them that, that have been with us for a long, long time. And, uh, of course, we have the drum circle, uh, which is amazing. And that, that kicks off Friday night when we get there. And uh, then we open the stage, and it's, it's really a great experience. We'll probably have about 30 or 40 bands. Wow. And the website, one more time, is? Yazgarod Reunion. Dot com. Dot com. All right. Yeah. Well, very good. Thank you for taking the time to talk. Well, thank you so much. Anything else you want to say? No. All right. That's good. <laughs> I'm good. Okay. <laughs> Welcome home. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Gerald Abramson as much as I enjoyed uh, uncorking that story for you. 
If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send them my way. My email address is mike at uncorkingastory.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>